there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you interested in learning more about how to crush recurring sales of cloud-based services, also known as software as a service? Then this is the episode for you because my next guest has over 10 years of revenue leadership experience and has helped to build two $50 million plus companies, that's in annual recurring revenue, in the SaaS space. But before I introduce you to Justin Welsh, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. And make sure to check out my new live streaming show every week on LinkedIn. I'll be sharing coronavirus-relevant career advice, interviewing all kinds of amazing professionals of all ages, taking your questions and featuring your comments live to help all of you college students and young professionals to turn your degrees into careers you'll love. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn so you'll know when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Justin Welsh, operator, advisor, and executive mentor to small and medium-sized businesses which sell some form of cloud-based service, also known as software as a service or SaaS. With over 10 plus years of revenue leadership experience, Justin has helped to build two $50 million plus, that's in annual recurring revenue, companies, teams of 150 people, and he's helped to raise over $300 million in venture capital. Most recently, Justin worked at Patient Pop, a healthcare marketing platform, and he helped them go from $0 revenue to over $50 million in recurring revenue. And he helped build the sales organization from one to 150 people in just four and a half years. Then in August of 2019, Justin left his full-time executive role at Patient Pop to open a boutique advisory company that partners with early stage, small and medium-sized business SaaS founders to help them lay the correct foundation for growth, help them see around corners, avoid expensive mistakes, and assemble world-class teams. Prior to Patient Pop, Justin was the 10th employee at New York-based ZocDoc, where he helped build multiple revenue leadership roles over nearly five years. Justin, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I have uh, had plenty of coffee today, and I am ready to talk software as a service with you. Thanks for having me on. Nice. Well, I want you and our listeners to know that this is a very unfamiliar industry to me. So I'm going to try to be the jargon police because you, of course, are an expert in this space. So if you're using any insider shorthand, I'm going to try to do my best to stop you and ask you to elaborate. I just don't want our listeners to think that I'm being rude. 
No problem. And I will give it my best shot to not use any jargon or acronyms without explaining them. Excellent. Well, as I was preparing for our interview, Justin, I did a little reading online about the software as a service industry in order to better educate myself. And I have to say, I was kind of shocked by the data. And for those of our listeners who may not be so familiar with this industry, at least with the term that's being used about this industry, if you've ever heard of companies like Dropbox, Google Drive, Netflix, Slack, Zoom, Adobe, these are all SaaS companies. And while this won't be news to Justin, one report I read going back, I think three years, several years, noted that in 2008, so about 12 years ago, only 12% of businesses used cloud-based apps. But in 2017, when this report was published, three quarters of all the organizations surveyed said that by 2020, they expected 100% of their apps would be cloud-based. Do you have any sense, Justin, as to where the industry is at this moment? Yeah, I think there's a common statement that says SaaS is eating the world. And what that essentially means is when companies used to buy software, they used to have to buy big on-premise servers, so big computers that stored all their data. You probably remember this, Andrea. This was not too long ago. And you might put a CD into your computer and have to update your software continuously. And now you don't have to do anything like that. Everything is in the cloud, stored on someone else's server, someone else's warehouse. You can pay low-cost subscription fees to get really great software. And I think we're just in the beginning. I think as more and more companies understand the benefit of subscription software, I think you're going to see 100% of companies deploying 100% of their software to the cloud. And what do you think that means for our young listeners who may still be in school right now, or maybe they graduated and are still looking for jobs? What kind of opportunities do you think there may be for them in selling SaaS? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing is recruitment will sort of mirror SaaS. So let me give you kind of an, an explanation of that. Earlier, I shared an example where you used to have to buy software that came and was installed at your physical location. And SaaS changed that. So now software can be stored anywhere in the world. Your data can be warehoused anywhere. And I think that's how recruitment's going to go. I think you're going to be able to work for any San Francisco-based tech company. I think you're going to be able to work for any Seattle-based tech company, any New York City-based tech company, anywhere in the world. Just like we're seeing now that coronavirus is hitting here. I think remote work is the future. And I think SaaS And the software that we have to use for our own businesses helps really support that remote first move. And so that's how I think things are moving. And to be very candid, I think it's a good thing. I think for folks to be able to live in a place with low cost of living and make good salaries and benefits, I think is a great thing for the US. And do you think that because of these growth opportunities in the SaaS space, that that means that there are more job opportunities? in SaaS for our young listeners? 
I do. I think SaaS companies are accelerating in terms of being created. So the number of new companies that are appearing on a regular basis. New companies means new sales opportunities, new marketing opportunities, new customer success opportunities. And one thing that the SaaS industry is really good at is specialization. And specialization just simply means creating roles inside of their companies that are very focused and very specialized. And so as they see the need for more of these unique roles in unique positions, the number of jobs will only get bigger and bigger and bigger. So the combination of more SaaS companies with more open positions, I think for your listeners is an, an absolutely great future. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let's talk about what is actually involved in selling SaaS, which is what you did at ZocDoc and at PatientPop. And I love the names. In both instances, you were a sub-10 employee. In other words, you were among the first employees in the door. Can you break down the industry for us, Justin, and in particular, the side of the house that you occupied in sales? What makes a great SaaS salesperson and is it different selling software as a service than selling in other industries? And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's different only because there's an education piece in the market. And so what I mean by that, I'll explain that, Andrea, is you used to buy big pieces of hardware, like I talked about, that got installed and the company paid $50,000 for a piece of software on-premise, on-site. And now we have a subscription model where it's in the cloud and you can subscribe to the software, which is actually beneficial for customers. And I think customers aren't used to spending their money for software in a subscription basis and like a subscription a payment formation. So there's just simply education to be given to our customers to tell them why we charge a subscription, why it's priced that way. I think if you can do that, it's not that dissimilar from selling other products. And I think selling as a skill is relatively consistent across different types of sales companies. So I'll give you an example of some of the things that you have to be able to do really well to be successful in sales. The first thing that you have to do is you have to actually understand your prospects' challenges. So often young salespeople, the very first thing they do, Andrea, is they tell a prospect all about their software. They tell them all the features, and we call that feature dumping, where you're just telling people all the features without really understanding their problem. And sales is about problem solving. So the best salespeople I know ask the most questions, go deeper, learn more, ask why. And by the time they're done with the first 30 minutes to 60 minutes of a conversation with a prospect, they can confidently say, I understand your business challenges. Once you understand a prospect's business challenges, the next step is to attach your software as the solution to their problems. So if you can map your software's features and benefits back to their problems, you're now showing them how by working together, you can solve their problem. So you've probably heard the saying, always be closing. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's always be understanding your customer's challenges. Mm, I love that. 
another saying that you've shared, I heard it in a talk you gave in June 2020, was a mantra at the companies that you worked at at Patient Pop and ZocDoc, they're kind of tongue twisters, and it was growth at all costs. What did that mean? Yeah, that was an old mantra. And that's so let me walk you through sort of how things have changed based on the environment. And I think a lot of your listeners will know this just from the news. So it used to be that what was really important was what we would call top line growth. So growing your revenue, right, as fast as you can, so you can get more funding, so you can continue growing, so shareholders could see returns, so on and so forth. And then you probably remember a time a few years ago, or maybe 18 months ago, when the company WeWork was in the news a lot. And one of the things that WeWork was in the news for was their business model had a lot of holes in it. They were burning a lot of money. They were hemorrhaging a lot of cash. And it was a faulty IPO. It didn't work. It never happened. And investors started questioning growing at all costs. And instead, they started to think about growing efficiently, growing profitably, and growing for the long-term sustained success. And so with WeWork and many other similar companies in the market going through turbulent times, that growth at all costs mentality has left the startup ecosystem. It's left Silicon Valley. I'm sure there are still some companies operating under that mantra. But today, if I were building a business from scratch, I would want to build a profitable, efficient business. Oh, great. Thank you so much for explaining that. In the Espresso Shots episode that we just recorded and check out show notes to see if Justin's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped if you want to learn more about how to break into this industry. You mentioned that the entry-level position that our young listeners should be looking out for when they're scanning job boards or looking at company websites is SDR, which stands for Sales Development Representative. Can you help our young listeners understand if they want to get into an SDR role when they graduate, are there any specific classes or certifications they should try to get or take, if it's a class, to give them an edge on the competition to get the SDR position? Yes. There are two places that I think salespeople or young folks who are graduating and want to become salespeople or break into the sales industry should spend some time. One is a really wonderful sales community called Sales Hacker. So saleshacker.com, that's the largest community of salespeople. And it's really a support system. It's resources, it's education, it's webinars, podcasts, blogs, and it's all free of charge. So I would highly recommend they go and they check out saleshacker.com. I have no affiliation other than the fact that I think it's a great place to spend time. That's number one. Number two, I would highly recommend getting a part-time job in college in the office for fundraising. So one thing that I did was when I, I went to Ohio State and I graduated in 2003, and from 2001 to 2002, two years, I did fundraising for the campus. And the reason that that's so relevant to selling is because you're calling people on the phone and you're asking them to commit money to the university. And that's hard. 
It's nerve wracking. It's challenging. You get hung up on a lot, but it builds that muscle where you keep going and you keep striving to hit your number, hit your fundraising goal. So spend some time on saleshacker.com. I would land maybe even if it's one hour a week, get some experience making cold phone calls and that will serve you well as you transition into your first sales development representative role. Oh, what fantastic advice, Justin. Another guest I had on the show very, very early is somebody who eventually went and became an executive vice president in the marketing space of Sony Entertainment. But when he was in college, he ended up working as a bill collector for an ambulance service, a private ambulance service. And he said that that experience, similar to the ones you're talking about there working in the development office, in the fundraising office of Ohio State, really helped him develop a thick skin. And oh my goodness, if you can get people to give money to their college, if you can get people to pay their ambulance bill, you can sure sell a software that you know can improve the business functions of customers or other businesses and just a great way to put on some training wheels and try it out. Definitely. Justin, do you think that our young listeners would be better served looking for a startup in the SaaS space or going maybe a more established, successful company route like a Dropbox or a Netflix? Yeah. I I don't know that there's necessarily a quote unquote right answer to that question, but here's how I might think about it. Companies like Dropbox that are well-established are very, very, very different than companies that are early in their life cycle, you know, for lack of a better description. The Dropboxes of the world are going to have formalized training, great resources, marketing materials that you can use. They're going to have everything that a big company has. Whereas that really early stage startup is going to be scrappy. It's going to be really smart young men and women. It's going to be less resources. So less resources than those companies, less support than those companies. But here's how I think about it. I wanted to be challenged when I got into technology. So I joined a sub 10 company and I had access to the CEO. I got to learn how to be scrappy and creative. I got to work with the product and development and engineering folks. I got to work with the marketing team, the customer success team. I liked that. So that personally for me was where I started. And today, Andrea, it's actually where I still play. For me, I don't like when the business is mostly figured out. I like to figure it out. And so I think that what your listeners should do is ask themselves, am I a builder? Someone who wants to go into a company and help them learn what the right thing to do is? Or am I an optimizer? Somebody who wants to join a company that's well-established and help them get slightly better. And so I think that's a personal question. I just prefer the former. Fair enough. Well, as a builder, can you talk a little bit about how you help take patient pop from zero revenue to over 50 million in annual recurring revenue and how you generated those valuable marketing leads? Yeah, I think the first step was I joined a company whose industry and in sales cycle and product, which I'll talk a little bit more about, I understood. So I came from ZocDoc, which was 
a marketplace, which essentially means you could go onto their website and search for doctors in your area and you could book online doctor's appointments. Kind of like you use open table for reservations. And so I had been in the healthcare space. So patient pop was in the healthcare space. So that was a good choice for me. And we were selling low cost software. So our software was about $400 to $700 a month. That may not sound low cost to you, but it is generally considered small business. And so that's the same type of software I was selling at ZocDoc. So it was very similar to my previous experience. So that was the first thing that I did was I picked what I thought was the right opportunity for my skill set. And it turned out that it was. The second thing that I did, Andrea, and I think this is something that is absolutely critical in building a business successfully, is I went out and I hired really talented people. I worked my network. I found old colleagues. I went to events. I set up my own events locally. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to fail because I didn't have the right people. So my second point was hire people that are smarter than you, get out of their way and let them work at the company and figure out things. That was sort of step number two. Step three was we did a lot of hypothesis testing. And so what I mean by that, Andrea, is I didn't know all the answers and neither did everyone on my team. So what we would do is we would form you know, assumptions, hypotheses, and we would go out and we would talk to our prospects and we would test those and we would measure them really effectively. And then the data would tell us what's going well and what's going poorly. So we would cut what was going poorly and double down on what's going well. So if I could sort of encapsulate those three things, I would say, pick the right opportunity for you, hire real smart people and get out of their way, give them autonomy to do great work and go out, test, hypothesize, make assumptions, but make sure that you're measuring the data and you're using the data effectively to make better moves in the future. Is it a form of A-B testing? Yeah, I would say it is. Sometimes it's even ABC testing. And so if your audience isn't familiar with what that means, AB testing is pretty simple. You try one thing 50% of the time, that's A. And you try the other thing 50% of the time, that's B. And you measure the results. And whichever one proves to be a better choice, you double down on. And so yes, that is exactly what we did. We AB tested things on our website. We A-B tested messaging to our prospects. We A-B tested pricing options. We tested everything. We measured effectively and we kept testing. Testing is never done. And what about generating those marketing leads, those all important hot leads, lukewarm leads that (laughs) you might be able to convert into a customer? Sure in your opinion and your experience, have been the best ways to do that? Yes. So I think there's a few different ways that we did that. We have what's called a multi-channel approach. And what that means is we don't put all of our eggs in one basket. And so I had a really, really talented marketing peer, the P of marketing, and now I believe the CMO at Patient Pop, Jared Jost. And so we worked together. He was the marketing side, I was the sales side. And here were some of the channels that Jared used to go out and generate those leads. He might use Google AdWords. So simple pay-per-click advertising would generate leads. We use something else called 
programmatic display campaigns. And for your listeners, that's pretty simple to understand if you think about your common scenario when you go to watch a YouTube video. You go to watch a YouTube video and you see that five-second commercial before the video, that's a display ad. Right? You go and you visit a website, you go to another website and you see an advertisement for that previous website, that's a display ad. So that was another way that we got customers into our you know, marketing and sales funnel. We worked with partners, Andrea, so people that were already selling to our customer base, but selling something different. We had them promote our product to those customers. So we had all these different approaches and we did exactly what I just described with A-B testing for each of those channels. We measured how many leads came in, how expensive they were, how many times we were able to have a conversation with them. And of those conversations, how many of them ended up buying our software. And so by measuring all of those different things, we were able to say, okay, in this channel, it costs $50 to get a customer. In this channel, it costs $75 to get a customer. And over here in this channel, it's $150 to get a customer. And again, you want to maximize the channel that's cheapest for your company. And so that's how we went out and got leads. Amongst other things like cold calling, cold email, social media, we had a multi-channel approach. Fantastic. Prior to joining Patient Pop, you worked at ZocDoc. Is that right? That's correct. And you were also a sub-10 employee there. Today, ZocDoc is valued at billions of dollars. Why did you make the decision to leave? And how did you get your foot in the door at ZocDoc in the first place? Yeah. So the way that I got my foot in the door at ZocDoc is kind of a funny story, but I'll try and make it a short one. For the first six or seven years of my career, I was not very successful. I couldn't figure out what I was passionate about. I went between multiple companies. I was actually fired three times before I was 28 years old. And at 28, I thought that I wasn't going to be very good at anything. And I put my resume on monster.com, which is what you did back then in 2009 at that point. And I received a call from a guy named Cyrus Masumi, who was the CEO and founder of ZocDoc. And they were just nine people big. They had one other salesperson. He said, why don't you come to New York City and interview for our job? So I did. And I was really blown away by the people, the product, the energy of the city. Everything about the experience just blew me away. And the first time in my life, I really wanted to work somewhere. And I really felt this urgency to get that job and to perform well and to do well and to accelerate my career. So there's a lot of talk about finding your passion. I am a believer that whatever company you join, you should be extraordinarily passionate about. That was the lesson that I learned from joining ZocDoc after many years of failure. So that was sort of number one for me. That's how I got in. You know, I spent a good four and a half years there, uh, Andrea, but I have this sort of internal clock that when it goes off, it's time to move. And here's how I judge that clock. I got up one morning, I got into the shower to get ready for work, and I was unhappy. And that was it. I decided that if I was no longer happy going to that place of work, I had given them four and a half amazing years, which is very long in my industry. And uh, I wanted a new challenge. And so patient pop was that new challenge. I was given additional responsibility and the additional opportunity to build my very own thing from scratch. 
And so the combination of that, which simply being the right time for me, I think listening to yourself is really, really critical. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that, Justin. And let me just add, because I have been spending, gosh, almost three years interviewing professionals in dozens of different careers to find out what they do and to listen to their journeys and their lessons learned. And of course, supplementing that by reading all kinds of books. And what I've really landed on, I want to pick up on the passion piece that you said. I actually think your experience, Justin, is super normal because most young people, when we graduate from college, we haven't identified our passion yet. We know what we're interested in. And that's why I say follow your interests, lean into your strengths, and by building what Dr. Cal Newport calls rare and valuable skills and expertise in a particular field. And actually, there's a number of hours that you should try to get. And it was popularized in a book, I believe, called Outliers. And the number is 10,000 hours, which roughly comes to about five years if you're working 40 hours a week. By doing that, and it sounds like you were probably doing that, Justin, after, I mean, you said it had been the first six years of your career that you really had not landed on something that lit you up. I think that was actually the natural course of things before you found ZocDoc. Yeah, I think that that's very possible. You know, I think there's also no maturity, right? Like I think I was not ready for the professional world. I think that I wanted to have fun with my friends and I didn't understand that. And so what I always tell young people is if they can find that role that they're passionate about, that company that they're passionate about, people they love working for, a product that's thrilling to them and they can do it at 22 versus when I did it at 28, I mean, man, they're going to really be accelerating their careers forward. And I always advocate that you don't just grab the first boring job that comes your way after graduation. I say, go for your passion or like we've talked about before, take a risk and build something that you're really passionate about. The chances are that you fail are probably pretty high, but the amount of learning and responsibility, I mean, wow, talk about accelerating your learning and accelerating your career. So those are just some takeaways that I would give listeners if they're thinking about how to spend their first year or two out of school. Yes. And if you are among those listeners who has not yet identified your passion, there isn't anything wrong with you. All right. You just haven't found it yet. And what Justin did in his professional journey and what most of my guests have done who have zigged and zagged, is that it goes back to that fairy tale, the Goldilocks and Three Bears. You're sampling different bowls of porridge to find the one that's just right. So you're trying it on for size and you are not going to like everything you try on. That is not a fail. That's a win. So pivot. Try something else. And to Justin's point, lean into those risks Take risks. Try it out. Something else that you have really excelled at, Justin, has been building up 
your followers on LinkedIn, where you've been able to really burnish your personal brand online to a following of more than 50,000 people, which now actually powers your business. How did you accomplish that? Yeah, uh, kind of by accident at first, and then it turned into intention. You know, as I was growing Patient Pop, I was a first-time executive, and I decided that I was learning so much that I might as well share what I was learning with other people who might get some benefit from that. And so I started writing each morning about things I was doing and mistakes I was making and wins and losses and all that good stuff. And it started to resonate with people. And as it resonated with folks, it kind of encouraged me to keep going. And so, you know, I had like 2,000 or 2,500 followers on LinkedIn, maybe 18 or 24 months ago. And I just made it a consistent part of my routine. To me, it's like anything else. It's kind of like what you talked about with 10,000 hours. It's consistency. And so in the last 540 days, I've written 445 unique pieces of content. I've grown from a couple thousand followers up to almost 60,000 at this point in time. And that to me was important because I knew that when I left my executive role, I knew that having an audience would be part of where my customer came from. And so each morning that I write, I acquire new customers. And that is how I power my business. It's nothing more confusing or there's no tricks or hacks or tips other than get started, be consistent, have an audience in mind, and share your journey. And if you do those things, somebody out there or some buddies out there will find that interesting and useful. So get started. Love it. So I'd like to flash back quickly to when you were in college. As you mentioned, you went to Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business. You majored in marketing. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Justin, when you graduated? Hmm. I knew that I was going to be in sales because my dad had been a salesperson for at that point in time, it would have been 30 some odd years and he still is to this day. So I knew that I was going to be a sales rep. My, my dad was a sales rep. Marketing was sort of a catch-all term back in 2003. It meant something significantly different back then than what it means today. And so marketing was sort of just the generic business degree that you got at Ohio State. The fact that I even have a marketing degree to me is still still pretty humorous. Why do you but I say that? that I was, because I, in terms of today's marketing in 2020 going into 2021, like I know enough to be semi-dangerous, but I certainly am not an expert at it. I leave that to my chief marketing officers and my VPs of marketing. I'm all on the sales side. And so it's just funny that that's what my degree says. But no, I knew I was going to be in sales. And... Ohio State did a really great job of preparing me for that. Even though I wasn't successful the first six years, I do believe that a lot of the soft and hard skills that I used at ZocDoc were instilled in me during my two years at the Fisher School of Business. It just took a while to extract them out. Love it. So what was your first job and how did you get it? Do you remember? Yeah. My first job was selling telephone lines for SBC. And I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question, Andrea? Oh, just how you got it. Yeah. So I went to a career fair at Ohio State and I walked around and I mean, career fairs were kind of the only physical career fairs, like the only thing back then, you know, the internet was not what it is today. And I walked around and I talked to a bunch of people 
And there was a manager whose, gosh, whose name I cannot think of at the moment for SBC and said, you know, I don't even think SBC exists anymore, SBC Ameritech. And he said, hey, if you come work for us, I'm going to teach you how to prospect. I'm going to teach you how to sell. It's going to be really hard, but you're going to learn a lot. And I was like, all right, that sounds great. That, that was good enough for me. And the job was in Columbus. And like, I wasn't a real thoughtful kid. I wasn't at that point in time in my life. I was just like, pays money and it's here in Columbus. And this guy tells me I'm going to learn something. I might as well grab it. And um, that was sort of the choice for that role. It's certainly not how I would advocate that young folks who are graduating school make choices today. Don't follow my footsteps in that one. I would have been much more diligent about choosing the right role back then. But back then in 2003, there weren't a lot of software companies. There weren't a lot of cool tech companies. It was much more boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, something tells me that, what is it, 17 years later, 17 years from now, we're going to look back on this period and say, can you believe that all they had was cloud computing? You know, all they had were the smartphones and this kind of stuff. So things change so quickly. You have already mentioned, Justin, the times that you face planted in your professional life. You were fired three times in your early mid 20s. I was fired twice in my 40s. And I look back on those experiences. Yes, they were super painful, but they were also incredible gifts to me because they allowed me to do what you did, which is to transition into success at the age of 28. Okay, you transitioned earlier than I did. I was loving my career as a journalist before I left that field in my 40s. But at the age of 28, you broke into the tech space. Could you share an example from one of the times you were fired? And most importantly, how you persevered from that experience and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Yeah, sure. I think one of the times that I was fired, that's probably the most prominent firing was I got fired from a pharmaceutical company after a few years. And during my time there, I was more concerned with being in shape and having fun. And I was a field salesperson, so I didn't have a manager sitting over my shoulder watching me. I was on my own. And so I spent a lot of time goofing off, going to the gym, hanging out with my friends. And in order to make it look like I was working, I logged some calls. And one of the calls that I logged was not a truthful call. So I lied about a call that I made. And I was immature to begin with when I was that age. And my boss didn't like me and she had a reason not to. I don't blame her. And so I think when she saw that, she knew that it was a lie. And she called me to a Panera Bread with the HR manager. And they fired me there. And here's something not to do. I had a company car and I went to get them the keys. I was living in Toledo, Ohio. And I decided that instead of returning the keys, that I would get in the car and I would drive it home to Cleveland. And so that's what I did as a young, dumb, immature person. And It was pretty embarrassing because my dad worked for the company. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And so I had to persevere through that embarrassment. And I also just had to understand the impact that your actions and behaviors have on people other than yourself. And I think my parents were pretty upset. I think my dad was pretty embarrassed. 
And my intention was never to embarrass my folks. And so that stung. And so I guess my takeaway would be, especially with social media today, because it didn't exist back then, everything that you do is etched in stone. And so think about that when you make silly choices, when you think you're being funny, it's your career. And your career is what will put food on the table for your family. You won't find it as funny when you're 40 versus when you're 26 or 27. I can assure you that. So yeah, that was the story of my firing from a a pharmaceutical company in Toledo. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And trust me, oh my God, there are so many things that I look back on from my 20s, from my 30s that I, if I could rewind the clock, I would do very differently today. And hopefully our young listeners will learn from our face plants and not make the same ones. So final question for you, Justin, if you could go back to Ohio State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think the first piece of advice I would give myself would be be intentional with the career and company that you choose. As we've kind of discussed a little bit, I think I would have been much more intentional about the companies. I would have said, invest in yourself early on, meaning read more, write more, listen to more podcasts, all of those things. I, I, podcasts weren't really popular back then, but there were plenty of sales books. You know, There were plenty of resources that I could have consumed. I wish I would have consumed more of those early on. Find a mentor. I wish I would have had someone that was my mentor at 24 versus when I finally landed my first mentor at 30. That would have been helpful. And I guess overall, I would have said, learn to think about your career as a long game. I got that advice when I was 28, play the long game, make decisions for the long term. And when I was young, I made decisions for the short term. So I would have educated myself on maybe those points and and probably... I've had a great career and I certainly don't regret anything at this point in time. It's all what's made my career. But I think that those things maybe would have helped accelerate it even more. Justin's website, if you want to learn more about him, get in touch with him, is the official Justin, all those words are smushed together, dot com. We'll include a link to it, of course, in show notes. And if you're interested in learning more about how to break into sales in the SaaS space, again, check out show notes to see if Justin's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Justin, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I will just say to you, as somebody who has almost 20 years on you, you are ahead of the game. And oh my goodness, so much more lies ahead in terms of success for you. Thank you for having me on, Andrea. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.